0: It may come as a surprise to our snooty friends on the coast, but Texas has four of the 11 largest cities in the country, and they're all within a few hours' drive of each other. That is, as today's guests point out, our state is well set up to be the nation's new technological and industrial powerhouse, if it makes the right decisions. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, in the hidden business of everything, from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbein, and today we're talking with three modern-day wildcatters, Gabby Rowe, Mark Nathan, and Lawson Gao. These are three Texans who have taken the audacious risk taking of the old school oil man and married it to a quest for a new generation, to make Texas a leader in innovation to compete with Silicon Valley. With me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro. Hi, Saul who sat down with Gabby, Mark, and Lawson during South by Southwest and weathered their withering scorn about all things Dallas to bring us a roadmap for Texan greatness. Tim, wildcatters are, of course, the old independent oil men known for raising capital on pluck and spending it on a hunch. So how does that translate to a modern tech economy?
1: Well, in Texas, it's all about creating the new wildcatting. Here's Gabby Rowe.
2: It's one of my favorite parts of of Houston. I think it it is more of an ethos than a specific group of individuals, but it is very much that idea of um, rolling up your sleeves and getting it done. We don't, uh, those wildcatters don't brag about what they haven't done yet. Um, They don't make a big deal about what they did do before. But they, um, as we have here, they put on their custom Lucchese boots and their their beautiful white shirt. They roll up the sleeves, get a dirty oil rag out and just make it happen. And the world of, of, of tech that, that we see in Houston, that means a whole lot of innovation to solve really big problems that maybe they don't talk about a whole lot. So So we're, Um, When I say we, all of us in the ecosystem are trying to do a better job of that so that the rest of the world um, understands just how powerful those wildcatters actually are.
0: So that's going to be our lens. How does an oil town, an oil mentality, become a tech mentality?
1: Yeah. How does a place that's known for one thing develop to be known for something else? Here's what Lawson Gao had to say about this.
3: Yeah, well obviously Houston has, is historically an oil town, but what we're all working on collectively is diversifying our, our economy to be more of a, 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 an innovation economy. And, and yeah, we, we have as Houstonians evolved from the boundless risk-taking entrepreneurialism of the Texas wildcatter. And so what we wanna see is that, that ethos
0: applied to, to other sectors. I mean, what are some things that people should also think of when they think of Houston?
1: Well, Houston has historically been a total hotbed of innovation in healthcare. For example, you may know the artificial heart was invented in Houston, Texas. It's also uh, the home of the space program, the Johnson Space
0: Center. I mean, they mentioned it's the city that became an ocean-going port, despite being 100 miles up a swamp from the coast.
1: Yeah, that's perfect Houston, right? We're gonna be a coastal city, damn it. Never mind that we're not really that close
0: (laughs) to the coast. So how does Houston's history as a port town, as an oil town, as an industrial town, help it pivot to tech? Well,
1: one thing that it has going for it that kinda helps the transition is that almost all of the really big, big industries that Houston is known for are tech heavy. This is something Mark and Gabby talked about.
4: Honestly, you look at the largest industries in Houston, oil and gas and medical, and obviously there's transportation, logistics, and all the ancillary services around
2: it. And, and we have more Fortune 500 companies in Houston than any other city except New York. And, and that means a whole lot of people with a whole lot of capital looking to do things more effectively, more efficiently, and to leverage technology. A great opportunity for today's innovators.
0: So what kind of startups are filling that niche?
1: Well, I might be instructed to tell you what kind is not filling it.
3: You know, somebody told me the other day that uh, they were talking to a a new app for doggy dating, and like, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Which one? What, why,
0: this is awesome talking.
3: So that's the I, And what I love about Houston is we look, we're trying to solve big problems. We're not going to be uh, we're not going to be this consumer software capital of the world, and um, and we're for the most part not going to mess around with doggy dating apps.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that what you think is maybe a differentiator between other Texas cities, or for that matter, other cities around the country and the world, that there's a particular interest?
3: Yeah, I, I think, um, sort of to echo what's been said, when we put our minds to, to big, global, you know, uh, world-changing projects, we solve those problems. And, um, and so I, I think that's what makes Houston really unique and what makes our entrepreneurial ecosystem really exciting to watch.
1: But really, what Houston's interested in is solving big problems.
2: And on the technical side, we also have a couple of things that are increasingly in our favor. Um, Two of our largest industries, energy and um, life sciences or, or, or digital health, happen to collect massive amounts of data and have for many, many, many years. They didn't know what to do with it. They thought maybe they needed to clean it up but they're also so risk averse that they didn't get rid of it. So here are two industries with massive quantities of raw data, perfect opportunity to overlay AI and ML, the perfect opportunity to create consistency around risk, which also happens to be really important to both of those um, industries.
0: Oh, so they end up with these huge data pools so they can do risk analytics, say, which the rest of all these global industries turn out to need.
1: Yeah. And this has been something Houston has embraced. It's You know, a wildcatter originally was a prospector. It was somebody using gut and feel. Well, now that you have all this data, Houston in particular has been good at starting to analyze and review and use that data so that the bets are getting smarter.
2: What a great time now as our technology has evolved to bring Houston to the forefront because of those industries and in tech. We, we have an alignment today in terms of technology and needs that we haven't necessarily had the same way before. So for me, it's less that we don't do consumer tech well and we do industrial tech well. It's more we do an industry well. We, we love the dirty and dangerous. We're really good at it. Um, and industrial tech is now a whole lot sexier than it was even 24 months ago.
0: Okay, but going back to our old-time wildcatter, or our new-time major company CEO or family office, the stereotype of these guys is they can't stop. They turn whatever income or profit they make from their successful wells into capital to drill more wells. I mean, how do you get the oil industry to start parking their money in new places?
1: Well, that's part of the challenge, because people tend to invest in what they know. So, But now there's this generation of new tech entrepreneurs coming up in Houston, and there's a little bit of a gap. Houston's big money came from oil and gas, mostly the energy sector, and to some extent from real estate. And these people have to now be educated on the opportunities that are outside what they know.
0: And how do you educate them on that?
1: There are some backdoor ways of doing that.
2: So a couple of things have been in our favor around that the last couple of years. The first is, we have more engineers in Houston per capita than any other city in the country. But they're a specific kind of engineer that have a whole lot to do with oil and gas. Just so happens a bunch of them got laid off in the last four years. And many of them decided not to go back into that very risky career business where they got moved around the world and instead find technology to solve a really pinpointed problem that they knew about. It's really easy though for a Schlumberger engineer of 20 years to talk about that technology with a bunch of people at Schlumberger with Lawson and I as their sidekick as opposed to us going in there to have that conversation first. Then we can start to get them to think about other types of investment. We don't necessarily tell them it's in the cloud, but, (laughs) um, but, but that's where we're seeing the change take place.
0: Oh, okay. So you have your industrial tech startup, and you hire this J engineer that you just got, who got laid off from the oil industry, and he goes in the door and he can talk to the oil company investor like he would an oil man. And then once he's made the connection, once you guys are talking...
1: Yeah, then there's common ground. Then you're starting to get their attention. And you can say, hey...
3: Do you like sports? I'll give you a, a space that sort of snuck up on me. That Mark and I talked a lot about is sports tech yep. and, and esports and gaming. Absolutely. And you know, if you think Houston, you think space and energy and health. And so we didn't. Our original hypothesis wasn't that we can be this, you know, a sports tech capital of the world. But um, but we've seen that just sort of accidentally. A lot of sports and esports tech. We've got the four uh, biggest professional sports teams here and uh, and we, we talk about trying to get these sort of old school oil and gas guys interested in startups. I call sports tech sort of the gateway drug to that because <laughs> nice. they, they might not be interested in blockchain technologies or cybersecurity or AI, uh, but everybody loves sports, and so you can at least get, them, get their interest peaked. And there's an incredibly
4: cool blend between sports tech and performance tech. Mm-hmm. So all the medical work and all the All the stuff we're doing on that side, both rehab and then actual optimization, blends directly into
0: sports. So what I'm hearing from Lawson and Mark is the industrial world is ever more networked, ever more data driven. And if we expand the idea of tech away from, say, business consumer products like Amazon, Dropbox, Facebook, and into the processes that make modern industry work, that help make things, then suddenly Houston starts to sound a lot more like a tech city already.
1: Yeah, I just don't know that uh, people know to think about it in terms of medical tech or factories or drilling, even though there are tech components to all of those things.
0: You know, one somewhat more controversial but also important area of this is around fracking and horizontal drilling. I interviewed a Houston startup CEO a few years back. One of the things he was saying was one of the key elements of the shale boom was a data revolution. We had to be able to collect and process and send all of the huge streams of data needed to take a drill bit, drive it around blind underground precisely, horizontally for thousands of feet without losing track of it, and then use that to drill a well.
1: Yeah. Data is increasingly a central part of innovation and
0: central part of startups. Okay, but let's step outside of Houston. Texas in general is sort of unique in that it has a bunch of very large cities, 10% of the country's population, each with different and overlapping home industries and big corporations, which are all within a few hours' drive of each other. What do they say about the rest of the state?
4: So we've got those things we know about. That's Houston. Great. Austin really is enterprise software. Mm-hmm. Enterprise software and something that I'm personally very, very interested in. I'm seeing a lot more of, and you will hear a lot more of this in the next few years, consumer packaged goods. Mm-hmm. We are sitting in Alan's boots right now. That's a consumer packaged goods on the apparel side. We've got tons and tons and tons of alcohol, specifically Tito's beverages, which you guys all know. We've got Deep Eddy Vodka. We've got a bunch of others, quite a few others. Nine Band of Whiskey and a whole lot of sparkling water. And, um, and there's also This house some-
1: proudly sponsored by Rambler. I'll just Thank throw that you. out there. <laughs> just Thank throwing you. that out there, Mark.
4: Absolutely. No, and it's very good. Uh, The bottom line is that we're seeing a lot of enterprise software here in Austin, which is what we're known for is what Austin said earlier, CPG, and in Dallas, it's really the financial center of the South. Dallas is a FinTech and logistics center. So logistics are a very big deal in Dallas, and in in San Antonio, and I don't wanna negate that, San Antonio has insurance, the military, and because of Rackspace, a lot of hosting centers. So those are the ones that I look at and the ones that I think about, and I'm now calling these the Dash cities. Dallas, Austin, San Antonio, and Houston. Let's we'll throw Fort Worth in there, but they ruined the acronym, so forget it. Uh, the, the point is, is that those four cities, that quadrangle in Texas, represents roughly 9% of the U.S.
0: population. So that's the thing that I think Texans tend to take for granted, and non-Texans who just see this huge size of our state don't know. Our cities are both really big and really close.
1: Yeah, I mean, Houston is the fourth largest city in the country, soon to be the third. Dallas-Fort Worth is the fifth largest metro area. San Antonio is nine, and Austin is 11.
2: Well, and and I think that um, we also forget that we're really close to one another. And, you know, when you go out to the valley, it can take two hours to go, you know, from, from Stanford to San Francisco, easily you can get between Houston and Austin in two hours, 10 minutes, two hours, two and a half hours with traffic. Um, And it's pretty similar distances as you go, we don't talk about Dallas, that's too far, but... um,
1: This is obviously a Houston panel. I like this, this is good.
2: But, it, but, but the, the, the ability to, to cross-pollinate here within Texas with all that size, with all that GDP power is um, really unparalleled in any other part of the country, even when you get to a place like Silicon Valley because we cross over so many different industries. We're not just in one silo. And um, people are beginning to recognize Uh, exactly how powerful that is
0: okay and all that's as great as far as it goes i mean i know there's a lot of talk around the texas triangle but of course in all those other regions i can get on a train and just go to a meeting in one of these other cities and it's pretty casual pretty easy in texas i have to drive or i have to get a ticket and fly and that okay you're a big exec you don't care that much but it's still going to be a source of friction in a otherwise growing industry Did they talk at all about government investment, infrastructure, grants?
1: Yeah, they're very cautious. Uh, That's a very Texan point of view, as I'm sure you know, Saul. They watch and look at government intervention as likely to mess things up as it is to help.
2: I do travel around the world, and there is a lot talking about innovation, and there is a heck of a lot of government funding for startups and innovation around the world. I would be remiss to say that I didn't drool when I walked into some of these these incubators and accelerators that have hundreds of millions of dollars of government funding. That being said, not entirely sure I want the strings that go along with it. I think I kind of like being that Texas wildcatter. Yeah, you sound like
1: a Texan right now. <laughs> you never know. You're I'm from New York. shaking your head over there, <laughs> No,
3: I yeah, I'm I'm nodding in agreement. Uh, I think if you look at like intentionally built ecosystems throughout the world and you tease out kind of key determinants of success, what you can find is that they're entrepreneurially led, that it needs to be grassroots and that uh, it's, not, it's not ever sort of jump-started uh, as much by government. It's It's the entrepreneurs and understanding what they want and what they need and surrounding them with support and then on top of that, government subsidies and programs, uh, augmenting those efforts. And so I think I think it has to be done in a certain way to, to create a sustainability to that ecosystem.
0: So what I'm hearing is a big heaping pile of, well...
1: So that's a good summary of their outlook. One thing they did say they thought government could do was to ensure fair play. They all agreed that that was a good use of government, a good role for government.
4: Should policy be focused on startups? And the answer is not directly. Here in the state of Texas, we have the Emerging Technology Fund. Uh, It worked for a while until it didn't. Uh, I don't believe that government should be in the business of picking winners as investments, even though I was on one of the committees to select those companies. Um, I believe, from a policy standpoint, that government, from municipality at the very bottom all the way to state government, hopefully federal at some point should actually make it much, much easier, and this is true for corporates as well, to buy from early stage startups. Yep. To not make it so difficult for startups to sell to large corporations would actually make the velocity of capital
0: that much faster. Okay, so we need some support, we need some streamlining, we need some cooperation. What else do we need?
1: Well, the trouble that Texas has gotten itself into is a series of catch-22s. Here's Lawson again.
0: Yeah, well, in, uh, we need
3: to do about 15 things all simultaneously in parallel and, and to do them right and because there's there's sort of a 15-way chicken and egg where talent won't stay here because startups aren't here and startups are leaving because VCs aren't here, VCs won't come here because the talent isn't here and, and on and on. So uh, the, the piece that the CAN is doing is we're building out 120,000 square foot workspace to be really best-in-class entrepreneurial space that uh, is then responsible for Consolidating, aligning all the players across the entrepreneurial stack—the mentors, the investors, programs, classes, speakers—and putting them under one roof. And um, so, to date, we've been in a twenty-thousand-square-foot space we call the waiting room. And right next door, we're building out this big space. Um, and is that the operating room? Yeah, <laughs> Which, okay. that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> got, it. got it. So, uh, so far, so good. We're about fifteen months in, and it's been indicative to us that. that Houston's really hungry for this kind of thing. And there's a rallying cry to get it right. And um, it's, it's, it's an exciting moment.
2: Well, I think it. it- It really speaks to um, that need for density. And I think that Mark and others for years have been saying that that was something we were missing in Houston, and and we were. Not saying,
4: screaming. Screaming, yelling,
2: (laughs) writing in the rooftops. Um, And it's a sprawling, sprawling place where you come in as a new member of the ecosystem, and good luck finding anything. And so creating these pods of density, it's the same thing that that Rice is stewarding um, in the Midtown District with the Ion and the Innovation District.
0: Oh, so what density means is the opportunity for cross-pollination, for chance meetings, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, better than being in some industrial park in Katy, far from the center of the action. And there's this really interesting effort that Rice has been a part of, actually, to create an innovation district in the center of Houston.
2: I think it was a it was a really seminal moment for for Houston and certainly a risky one for Rice, um, and un, you know they didn't study it for two years. In fact, I think they thought about it for about five days and then committed to go forward and build the innovation district, which they've now added more acreage to. It's 15 acres smack in the middle of uh, of Houston, um, just above the museum district and below downtown. And it is anchored by this old Sears building, which they're adding two more floors to and converting into a 260,000 square foot um, innovation hub, 105,000 square feet of which is going to be dedicated purely to subsidized innovation space for startups and for research.
1: It's really cool. They are investing in real estate in Uptown for a community to build and gather so that those kinds of interactions that they were talking about were chance encounters that lead to new prospects, that they're helping to facilitate that with this district. They're partnering with NASA to design this robotics lab to focus on industrial research, like how to build robots to do kinds of jobs that are really too dangerous for humans or that are in space. Which, as
0: we've said, is another Houston specialty.
1: Yeah, they're bringing the Valkyrie, which is this really cool humanoid robot. Looks kind of like a really shiny spacesuit, developed to work on the International Space Station.
0: I did hear about this. NASA made the hardware, and they're sharing it with top-level science universities to help expand what it can do.
1: Yeah. Bring it back to what Gabby said. Houston does dirty and dangerous.
2: Extrapolate that out to the oil and gas industry. Humanoid robots... Um, being able to man oil rigs in in really dangerous places. So lots and lots of opportunities to drive forward Houston's innovative DNA, but at a really, really large scale. Um, So that district, uh, we believe, will will become the, the, the hub for the spokes, so to speak. So you come to Houston as a corporation or as an innovator for the first time, you can start at the hub and then go out to all the many spokes.
0: Okay, so we've talked about the ingredients that we could potentially put into place. Well, are people actually putting them into action?
1: Oh, yeah, man, yeah, there's so much. Just to start with, they're cybersecurity, and we're talking cybersecurity on a whole nother level, a different level from what most people think.
2: So, for example, when we talk about cybersecurity, we're not talking about um, hacking people's email addresses we're talking about people blowing things up. So we have startups that have developed both hard tech and soft tech solutions for preventing people from coming into your petrochemicals plant and telling you that your water cooler is working fine when in fact they've shut it down and your whole place is about to blow up. Um, Those are the kinds of startups that we're seeing, being able to fully integrate the upstream, midstream process and create um, uh, risk data and risk analyses coming out of that.
0: Right. And of course, there's also medicine, which, once again, has to work with tons of data, tons of money, and has tons of need for security and logistics.
1: Right. And there's a real interesting case study in innovation there, too.
2: I think also, um, you know, when people think about that medical side in Houston, they don't realize that much of it was funded purely for innovation. So the way the medical center came up was it was a land grant from the Anderson family, as in MD Anderson, and it was given, the land was to be granted for free to anyone who would build anything that would innovate um, in the world of medicine and, and life sciences. And so all of those hospitals that popped up that got, free space also built innovation labs in them. TMC that owns that land and operates it built parking garages on the land that was left. They make $90 million a year on that parking. We actually joke with people about how we innovate through parking and they think we're kidding. Um, But but what they've done with that $90 million a year is put it into some of the most advanced um, medical device life sciences, AR, VR, um, med-related um, innovation spaces anywhere in the world. Um, so that, you connect that with the sports tech and the energy tech, and, and that's, the, that's the secret sauce that, that Houston has in many ways.
0: Well, all that sounds really rosy.
1: Yeah, it does sound rosy. And, you know, treat that with some skepticism. Houston does have a lot of potential. Texas does have a lot of potential but it's not going to happen by itself. One thought that Gabby had was we need to market ourselves better.
2: Look, I've, I'm a recovering New Yorker um, turned into a Houstonian. And so my vantage of Houston's challenges in this area are very much through that lens. Um, in New York, everybody is you know, talking about about 150 percent of what they do. In Houston um, and in many parts of Texas, we talk about 50% of what we do. How do we bridge that gap and at the same time change perception um, across the country? And a lot of um, the leadership mission in Houston today is continuing all that work all that bringing together, and then going out there and telling absolutely every single person you can meet about the amazing stuff that's taking place. And Mark, so it's
0: perception then, maybe. There is that's a huge piece barrier. of perception. That's part of it. So listening to all these clips, when, when the people talk about the things that are standing in their way, I can't help but notice how careful they all sound, as though there's something that they're deliberately not talking about. What is that?
1: But Actually, they did talk about it.
4: The other part of it, the, the, the third rail, is politics. Okay. And ultimately, and i say politics, not big P, small P politics. Mm-hmm. It's, we're all fighting for scarce resources. It's not just money, which we all talk about. Texas is, it suffers from the fact that we only get about $3 billion worth of venture capital a year. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a large number, it's pretty good. Except for one thing, California gets 23 billion. Mm-hmm. And New York is about half that. So the fact is, is that we are a very distant third.
0: So when they make the distinction between big P and small P politics, what are what are small P politics?
1: It means not Democrat or Republican, but something we've talked about a lot over this series. Gabby talked about it as unhealthy competition within the industry at a time when people really need to work together.
2: It's when I say, look, I'm not from around here. Um, and if we don't, st- step aside and wait until we have actually something to fight over to have those battles, we're never going to make it. Um, All boats rise if all of us and everybody else in this area are successful. And I don't mean just Houston. I mean that, I mean, Dash. Dash has to work um, if we're going to compete with the coasts. And there's no reason why it shouldn't. If we get on one another's cases about it now, we might as well just pack up our bags and leave. So what
0: kinds of downstream problems come out from that lack of resources that are available for startups.
1: There's a competition for resources, there's a competition for talent, and that can complicate this. If you've got good idea and good money but you can't get good people, your prospects for actually being successful are not as good.
4: We have suffered from the fact that we've got incredibly strong, smart founders We've got incredibly good and strong, smart investors. We actually have a very big problem with middle management. Mm -hmm. Middle management in California has worked for Apple, Google, Microsoft, and then did a stint at eBay. They take the DNA of all those different things and then infuse them into their new startup. We don't have that. We go from zero to one very quickly and that's it. So that sounds like a
0: really tough problem to solve. What are they doing about it?
1: They're recruiting. And they're not chasing like the Amazons of the world. They're looking for people who are able to work in middle management and who are looking for a new place that maybe they can grow into.
2: So when we go out on these trips to the Valley now out of Houston, we're actually not going out there to recruit HQ2 to come to Houston. We're going out there to recruit talent, um, and we're going out there for some of those companies to set up their BD efforts um, to attract talent from other parts of the country for that, including the valley. And we have cost of living on our side. We have quality of life on our side. And for startups, we have burn rate on our side because you're going to go through your capital a whole lot slower paying talent in Texas, not just Houston, but in Texas, than you will in, on either one of the coasts.
0: This puts me into mind of a bunch of little hermit crabs looking for shells to grow into. Yes, well, you'll get
1: a much bigger shell for your money in Houston than you will in New York City or San Francisco.
0: So what do they tell people in those states or in other industries that they're trying to entice? That's
1: one of the things that Gabby works on. Her organization, Station Houston, is trying to facilitate and grow this whole community in the center of Houston. She does a lot of recruiting.
2: Well, um, I will say that many of the programs that we're offering today in terms of one-stop shopping for startups were modeled after two of the incubators that I saw in Beijing. they're harder for us to do because we have to get corporations to sponsor us, and and um, Station Houston, which I run, is a nonprofit, and so it, it helps us do it. It's one of the reasons we converted to a nonprofit so that we can put a trademarking shop in there. We can get lawyers to support them. We have an ARVR lab. We're putting in a robotics lab, so that it's a place where the entrepreneurs don't have to. to to find what the resources they need, making the process as frictionless for them as possible. That was my biggest takeaway um, from most of those visits, whether it was in China or Taiwan or Romania, um, all of those places have, or the UK have government set up shops that do exactly that. We have to do the same thing for our entrepreneurs. It's just, we have to be a little bit scrappier about how we do it.
0: (laughs) So when she says scrappier, It sounds like she's talking about finding investment where um, none was previously forthcoming. I mean, if the money isn't there, how are you going to go get more of it?
1: Well, I think the way that they are finding to get that money to come out of its little holes that it's known and stayed in forever is an age-old thing, FOMO. Fear of missing out. (laughs)
2: 100%.
4: We show exits— to people that have put a little tiny angel fund together or a handful of hundreds of thousands of dollars into a startup that sells for hundreds of millions, then every single family office and every single wealth manager will say, let's allocate towards those earlier stage companies. It's not gonna happen overnight and it's not gonna be big numbers yet, but we're starting to see it. The family offices here in Austin and around Texas, especially in Houston and Dallas, have all the money in the world. The venture capitalists, let's face it, There are roughly 50 individual human beings that work for true blue venture capitalists in the state of Texas. 50, five zero, that's not a lot. How many of those could be working for family offices? Five times that. The fact is, is that we have to show the family offices and the managers that there is money to be made and risk is less than investing in, once again, another hole in the ground or another multifamily apartment building. So getting them interested, and we have to do that through press, and we have to do that through big exits that showcase real investors making money.
2: I think we I agree 100%, and I also think we need to add new and additional ways in which those family offices can engage and invest. And I think those are specifically targeted and focused funds. We have some new funds coming up specifically focused on whether it's on female founders or or different types of investment vehicles. Um, The more of that we can do homegrown in Houston um, or here in Austin or across Texas, the better. Dash. Dash. The Dash Fund. Dash
1: Fund. The Dash Fund. Okay, we started it here.
0: So did they worry about what's going to happen to Texas's oil industry foundation if or when the world moves toward decarbonizing? Like, she talked about the Valkyrie working on oil wells, but we need to start getting our energy from other sources pretty quick here.
1: Yeah, that's true. It's a problem I think people in Houston in the oil business actually know and know better than a lot of people. But Texas is also a leader in this, and it is actually in energy production the most diverse of any state in the country.
2: Yeah, I will also say that um, there is increasing growth in the innovation um, efforts within the majors and super majors around what they're going to do about sustainable energy and water consumption because they can't afford for Houston to no longer be the energy capital of the world. And if sustainable environmental solutions end up growing up somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world, Houston goes away in a lot of ways. And so they know that, and they're building the efforts to support it.
1: So majors and supermajors in this context means... Huge companies? Huge energy Huge companies. Energy companies. <laughs> Huge energy companies. Huge energy, Exxons.
2: Yeah. The Exxons and the Halliburtons and everything in between.
4: Shells and all those guys. Yeah. yeah.
0: So we have a kind of hidden tech industry in Houston and a possible synergy with the cities all over the state. Is there anything else?
1: Well, I'm just reminded of this thing that Gabby said. She had this nice thought about how the vision of Houston has changed.
2: I do a lot of traveling around the world with leadership in in Houston to talk about Houston. And uh, it, we used to get some funny faces when we would mention where we were coming from. Um, we don't get that anymore. Um, and, and and that's only gonna, that momentum is only gonna grow over time.
0: And as they say, that's a wrap. Tim, it's been a pleasure working with you. Everyone else, thank you for joining us on this.
1: Saul, so it's been a pleasure. And to anybody who's listening, remember to check out the Rice Business Wisdom website. Thanks for listening. Until
0: next time, adios. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, Executive Producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elvine. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.